Well, good evening, church family. It is an honor uh, and a privilege uh, to be able to speak to you tonight. Um, We're going to continue our series uh, that Pastor Quentin has started uh, that we've labeled Everyday Disciple Making. And uh, Quentin started this series, and we started in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. And Quentin taught us that we have a task as disciples, and that task is simply to teach other believers to obey the commands of Jesus. In the second sermon, Pastor Quentin taught us that uh, we're supposed to abide in Christ based out of John chapter 15. In the third, we learned that we were supposed to to love one another. That was also in John chapter 15. And then Pastor Quentin wrapped up uh, John chapter 15 this past Sunday by teaching us that we were supposed to be witnesses for Jesus, even though the world will hate us. Well, so tonight we're going to get to where the rubber meets the road. We're going to get very practical in how we do discipleship. What does it mean to make disciples? And we're going to do this looking out of Romans chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to go and turn there to Romans chapter 1. Tonight we're going to look at the the beliefs of a disciple. Uh, To be a disciple, what does it mean to be a disciple, and what do we believe? And so we're going to see this in Romans chapter 1, and we've got a lot of ground to cover if we're going to cover the beliefs of a disciple, so let's jump right in. Paul says this in his letter to the Romans, starting at the end of verse 4, it says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father God, would you empower me to speak? God, to speak boldly of your word, to speak truthful, God, according to your character. Would you hide me behind the cross, Father? May you receive the glory. Lord God, Sharpen our minds to understand the word that you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You see, uh, this past year, I started a new hobby. Um, This past spring, I bought a bow, and I started bow hunting for deer this past fall. And it's been a lot of fun, but it's also been incredibly challenging. Uh, And the reason for that is because when you're bow hunting, you don't have the luxury of staying a good distance away from the deer and and not being heard or being seen um, or your scent being carried down to where they are. No, when you're bow hunting, you have to be very close range. You see, good bow hunters um, can shoot accurately anywhere from 40 to 50 yards, um, but even that is pushing it. So I know for myself, I've got 30 yards or less, or it's literally going to be a hit or miss situation for me. Well, I had an opportunity uh, just a couple weeks ago, and I was sitting in the deer stand, and here come two deer walking in at 60 yards. And I could just see their legs, they were hiding behind some trees, and all of a sudden they just stopped. And I, I was like, they don't see me, there's no way they can see me. So I sat still, and they sat there, or they stood there for five or six seconds, and next thing I know, I see two little white tails running away from me. You see, they had caught my scent from the wind carrying it straight down to where they were, and I was busted and my hunt was over. You see, a deer has certain uh, senses, whether it's smelling or hearing or seeing, that tells them that there's danger in the area. Their brain tells them that there's a truth, there's a a truth statement, that there's an enemy in the midst of my presence. And that truth statement tells their brain to run. You see, faith and obedience work a lot like a deer's senses and its brain. Our faith in who Jesus is tells us, it tells our brain and produces a reaction that we would call obedience. So in the same way that the deer caught my scent, my faith provokes a response. You see, too often, though, I think we Unlike the deer that I saw a couple weeks ago in the woods, we act like deer in the middle of the night standing in a road with headlights on them. 
You know what I'm talking about. If you, if you drive late at night this time of year, you turn a back road and you go around a corner and the next thing you know, you see two or three deer standing in the road and you slam on brakes and your headlights are right on them and the deer freeze and they don't know what to do. You see, their senses are telling them there's a foreign scent in my area, run. Uh, they see that there is a bright light, but they don't run. In other words, their faith produces no action. There's no response. There's no obedience. Church family, I'm afraid this is where we are today in the church. We have a faith, but it never produces obedience in our life. Paul tells us in this verse that that his job, his duty is to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, before I get to that that phrase, which is going to be critical for our study tonight, I want to give you guys a little bit of uh, some context. You see, Paul is opening in these first seven verses of the book. He's doing just a greeting. And this was common in ancient letters. The the letters would always start with who was writing, their qualifications, and who, you know, what they have done. And then they would say who they're writing to, and then at the very end there would be a blessing. Well, Paul uses the first six verses of this, this chapter introduce who he is. But notice that he only uses one of those verses to really talk about himself. That's the first verse. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Well, then he uses the next five verses to just talk about the greatness of our God. I can't skip over this, even though I feel like I'm short on time with what we have to talk about tonight. I can't skip over the fact that Paul shows us what it means to be a servant of our Lord. Out of the six verses that Paul has to to praise himself, to lift up who he is as the author of this letter, he uses one, while the other five he uses to exalt God. So let me ask you, when you're given opportunity to speak, Do you speak of your praises first? Or do you speak of our Lord's praises? Do you speak of our Lord's greatness? Far too often, I speak of myself and not of our Lord. Paul goes on in verse 5 and he says that this Jesus, we have received grace through him. Now, what is this grace that he's talking about? Well, at the very least, this grace is the gospel. It is Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. You see, Paul had a crazy testimony. Paul went from a persecutor who killed Christians, in fact, who was honored among those who sought Christians out. He went from that person to being the greatest missionary and church planner in all of church history. That's some serious grace. Maybe you have a similar story where God has has changed your life and put it upside down and only he can get the glory because of it. That's what Paul's talking about here with this grace. We have received grace through him. Praise God that because of God's grace we are no longer enemies, but we are children of his kingdom, of his family. And Paul goes on and he says, not only have we received grace, but he says he's received apostleship. And now this is a really weird word. And when I read it the first time, I was a little confused at what Paul was trying to tell us here. But I did some study and and this word, it comes from a Latin word that really means missionary. In other words, what Paul's saying here is that Jesus has given us grace, but he's also given us a mission. This mission we read about in Acts 9, 15, where God tells uh, Silas, I believe it is, he says, Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. You see, Paul's saying that my mission goes back to what God said it was in Acts 9, it is to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. (laughs) Now, maybe this sounds very familiar to you if you listen to the very first sermon in this series. Because this is precisely what the Great Commission says. We're to take the gospel to the nations and make disciples and baptize them and teach them. And so in no way am I trying to say that 
that we are Paul, that we have the authority of Paul. However, what I am saying is that the mission of Paul is the mission of us. Because every single disciple has the same mission, and that is to bring glory to God through making disciples. So as we read this, as what Paul says in verse 5, we can directly apply it to ourselves because what he's talking about is exactly our mission. It is disciple-making. So what does he mean by this phrase, the obedience of faith? Well, I'm going to tell you, it is a tough, tough phrase, even in the original language. Some scholars have said that this means that we are to to be obedient to the faith that we have in Jesus. Another scholar says that it's, no, it's actually the obedience that comes from our faith. And one other scholar said, no, it's actually the obedience that is our faith. Well, in a sense, it's all of those. Uh, And before I just tell you what it means, I think it's important for us to look at each word and say, well, what exactly is Paul saying here? And so let's look at the the first word, uh, this obedience. Well, in the Greek, this word carries the idea of hearing something. It's the idea of being able to hear someone speak. A similar word is used in a Greek translation of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, You may know this as the Shema. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word, hear, O Israel, is the same word. It's similar to the word that Paul uses here for obedience. And now, obviously, Moses, when he says this, his idea is not simply just for Israel to simply hear that the Lord is one. No, his idea was that they would listen to it, and then they would take heed of it. They would apply it to their lives. This is precisely what Paul's telling us here. He's saying obedience is the idea of hearing something and then doing something. It's an action. So if this is what obedience is, then then what is this faith? I, I, I love the way one scholar put it. He says, biblical faith is not mere intellectual assent, although it involves that. Nor is it affirmation of a set of moral maxims although it involves that. No, biblical faith is active commitment and surrender to Jesus. Let me say that again. Biblical faith is active commitment and surrender to Jesus. So when we actively surrender to Jesus, it provokes a response. It demands obedience. The obedience of following Jesus' commands. So then the obedience of faith is being like the deer in the woods that runs when it hears a limb break, when it smells a foreign scent. This is why James will tell us in his first chapter of his letter to to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see, it does no good for us to have a faith but not be obedient. I read uh, one author put it this way. And and this statement has stuck with me. Genuine faith always leads to radical obedience. Would you characterize your life as radical obedience? You see, I, I truly believe that having faith in Jesus during Paul's day and the audience that he's writing to in Rome To follow Jesus, to have faith in Jesus demanded something. It costed something. And not that following Jesus doesn't cost something today. But we don't really experience persecution here in America. At least that's what you'll hear. And yes, I I know that our brothers and sisters in other countries, they, they suffer, and they do, and they are seriously persecuted, and we should pray for them every moment that we can. And so I'm not trying to neglect them. I've spent time in other countries with, with men and women who are fearful of their life because of following Jesus. And so I'm not trying to downplay that, but this is what I am trying to say, that we 
don't experience persecution in the church today in America because our faith doesn't lead us to obedience. Our faith doesn't cost us anything because we don't do anything. You see, our faith in America, American church faith, is mere intellectual assent. It's not biblical faith. Pastor Quentin covered last week in John chapter 15. It says this, listen to the words of Jesus. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love it as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Can I just be honest with with you guys tonight? Oftentimes, the world loves me because I act like the world. Yes, even as someone who is in seminary to be a pastor, someone who is serving in a church staff, very often my life looks like the world. The world doesn't hate me because very often my faith doesn't lead me to obedience. May it not be so. May it not be so. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you did something that was countercultural for the sake of the gospel? And I'm not talking about doing something countercultural just to say that you did it, just to be a rebel. Anybody can do that. No, when was the last time you did something that is against the grain of the world for righteousness' sake? For the sake of Jesus' name being honored and glorified. I would be ashamed to answer that question, and the Lord has wrecked me as I've studied for this. Because oftentimes I find myself pleading for forgiveness with the Father for not being an obedient son. So I'm convinced that Paul's writings here, that to bring about the obedience of faith, this should reinvigorate us, our faith, It should drive us to want to be obedient, to make disciples. And so how do we do that? Well, I think the only way we can do that is to look back at what our faith really is. What do we believe in? Because if we don't understand what we believe in, we have no reason to be obedient. And so I've got to move very fast because I've got a lot of ground to cover, to cover everything that a disciple believes And so I'm not going to read every reference, but I want you to know that every point that I make, I'm going to give you a scripture reference. And this is my encouragement to you at home. Write these down. Make an outline and write these references down. And throughout your week, over the next week or however long it takes you, I encourage you to get in your Bible and read these. See the truths of what it means to believe as a disciple. So first, uh, out, of the, out of the six things we're going to cover, first, what do disciples believe about the Word of God? What do we believe about this book that we claim to be the Word of God? Well, I think there's four ways to really explain this. And, and first, we believe that Scripture is authoritative. And what I mean by that is that Scripture is the Word of God, and to disbelieve or disobey it is to disobey God. We believe what's written in here is directly from God. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says this to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. What that means is that as the, the human authors were writing these letters, as they were writing these, the, the, these books of prophecy, the Holy Spirit inspired them what to write. Now, I can't even begin to explain to you how that works, but this is what I know the Bible teaches. And it's beautiful, it's awesome. Because what we see is we see letters of authors and their writing style. But we know that it's from God and it's God's words. So to disobey what's written in the word is to disobey God. And this includes the Old Testament. And I know that there are things in the Old Testament that they're not applicable to us, I get it. But to disobey what does apply to us is disobedience to God. 
Uh, listen to way, the way Peter puts it in, in his second letter. He says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Once again, scripture is truthful because God has said it. And what is written inside of it is true because it comes from God. So scripture is authoritative, but secondly, scripture is clear. In other words, the Bible is generally understood by all who read it and seek God's help and are willing to follow Jesus. Now, some of you guys at home just cringed when I said that, and you said, Tanner, no, it is not. Scripture is not clear. I have read through Leviticus. I've done the year-long reading through the Bible, and I didn't get a lick of it. Before you cut your, your live stream off and call me a heretic, let me explain myself. You see, when we seek to understand the Bible by asking for the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll understand it. When we have repentant hearts before our Lord and we open his word, he'll reveal what he means by it. And if you don't believe me, let me just dare you to do it. <laughs> Because to this day, I've yet to open this word with a repentant heart, with no sin, being not being confessed, and the Lord not speak to me and tell me what it means. So scripture is clear. Listen to way, the way Psalm 119, 130 says it. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. It imparts understanding to the simple. This idea of simple here is not to just be lacking intellectual abilities. It's actually that plus lacking common sense. So uh, we've got a lot of people in our day that they're simple according to this verse. But it gives understanding to these people. You see, Deuteronomy 6 is written so that the the grandparents would teach their children and their children's children. So the idea is that what they were teaching, what Moses was telling them was true about God was understandable for children. The same is true for the New Testament letters. They're written to entire congregations, meant to be read in front of the entire church so that everyone would be able to understand. So scripture is clear. Thirdly though, scripture is necessary. This means that scripture reveals to us the gospel and how to live holy in the will of God. You see, without scripture, we have a sense of morality. Everyone in this world has a moral compass. And so no matter where you go around the world, every country, every nation, every people group has an idea in their mind that stealing is wrong, even without any laws in place because all of humanity has a moral compass, but also we can see the existence of God. Scripture tells us that, that only the fool would look into nature and say that there is no God. And so scripture is necessary then not for showing us morality or the existence of God, but no, scripture is necessary for the gospel because without scripture, I have no idea who to put my faith in. I have new, no idea who to trust. So scripture is necessary. Romans 10, 13 through 17, a beautiful passage. Paul says this in verse 14, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Man, this, God, this verse should lead us to go to the nations. How are they to believe? How are they to know who Jesus is and believe in him if they've never heard of him? If they've never read scripture, if they've never heard scripture preached, how are they to know to believe in him? Paul would say they wouldn't. And he would go on to say, how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the good news. So scripture is necessary. Last, scripture is sufficient. Scripture contains the entirety of what we need for salvation in Jesus, to trust Jesus, and to obey Jesus. You see, the Bible is not an answer book for our lives. And it drives me crazy when I hear people say that every answer to life is in Scripture. I'm still looking for the answer on how to bake a cake in the Bible. Still looking for the answer on how to change the oil in my car. 
The Bible doesn't have the answer to every single question in life. No, the Bible tells us we need salvation in Jesus and tells us how to live for him. This is what the Bible does. It gives us everything we need, but it doesn't give us the answer to every single question. So let us be careful what we say about God's word. 2 Timothy 3 reminds us of this, that scripture is sufficient by saying that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And because scripture is sufficient, there's no need to add or take away from it. In Revelation 22, I don't have times to read the verses, but in Revelation 22, God gives us a warning of what will happen to those who add or take away from his word, and it is not a good thing. But we also must realize that because Scripture is sufficient, it's the entirety of Scripture. It's not just the New Testament. Yes, I get that we are New Testament believers, and the covenant has been renewed in the New Testament. But the Old Testament is still for us, because as Paul was writing those words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the New Testament hadn't been put together. What he's actually writing about is the Old Testament. Now, it applies to the New Testament, but my point is we cannot neglect the Old Testament, what it has to offer. It tells the story of redemption, the grand narrative of redemption. So let me ask you, in your discipleship groups, do you focus just on the New Testament? Do you ever read in the Old Testament? There's glorious truths about who God is and how he brought about redemption. So application, what do the disciples believe about the word of God? Well, because it's authoritative and clear and necessary and sufficient, we must commit ourselves to studying it and teaching it to others. This is our application. If we want our faith to end up in obedience, we have to study it and teach it to others. Secondly, what do disciples believe about God? Now, this is so much to cover. So I'm going to go really fast, and I want to give you just the attributes of God, and then I want to say something about the Trinity to close it. But the attributes of God, let me first say that God is infinite. We see this in Psalm 145.3 and Psalm 147.5, which says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And what it means to be infinite means that we will never fully understand God and who he is. We can never run out of learning things about our God. Now that's beautiful because for the rest of my life, I'm going to chase after learning more and more and more about the one who died for me. And I'll never get tired of it because he's infinite. Secondly, God is independent. God doesn't need us or creation to exist. Rather, we exist to glorify him. We see this in Acts 7, 24 through 25. Thirdly, God is immutable. This simply means that God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He was the same at eternity's beginning, which it's a paradox. He, he's the same then, and he's the same forevermore. We see this in Psalms 102. 25 through 27, and James 1.17, I love the way James says it. Listen to this in verse 17, the end of the verse, it says, whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know what that means? It means that God's shadow never changes because he never changes. That's a good word. I can find comfort in that, that the God that I read about in the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And the God of the Bible is the God that's living inside of me today and empowering me to walk for his glory. So God is immutable. Fourth, God is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. He is outside of time. We see this in Psalm 90, verse 2, and Job 20, 36, verse 26. Fifth, God is omnipresent. This means that God is everywhere. He has no size or spatial dimensions. He can go wherever he wants and he's already there. We see this in Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24, in Psalm 139 verses 7 and 10. And Psalm 139 says that even in Sheol, it says, As I, if I go to the depths of Sheol, oh God, you are still there. What that tells me that even in hell, God's presence is there. Now you say, Tanner, I thought hell was eternity separated from God. Well, it is. It's separated from God's goodness, 
God's wrath is there. God's presence is everywhere. So he's everywhere. He's always with you. Sixth, God is omnipotent. It means he's all-powerful. I like this definition better, though. Listen to the way one scholar said it. This means that God is able to do all of his holy will. In other words, everything that God wants to accomplish and want to do, he can do it. There's nothing stopping him. We see this in Genesis chapter 18, verse 14, and Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Now, before I move on, I feel like it's necessary to say that God cannot do anything outside of his character. When you're pressed with the question of, well, can God sin? The answer should be like Paul says in Romans, absolutely not. Absolutely not, because it goes against his character. God can do no wrong. It's the essence of who he is. This is why I love the definition of omnipotence as uh, that God is able to do all of his holy will. There's nothing stopping him. Next, God is truthful. Uh, God is true. Everything he says and does is true. We see this in Jeremiah 10.10 and John 17.3. And included in this truth is an attribute of God that I find especially comforting. And it's God's faithfulness. We see this in Deuteronomy 32.4, Numbers 23.19, Titus 1.2, and Hebrews 6.18. I'm thankful that my God is faithful, that what he says will come to pass. What he promises me will happen. Next, God is love. We know this from 1 John 4, 8, that God eternally gives of himself to others. In three ways, God loves. God loves, he loved before creation. We see this in John 17, 24. In John 14, verse 31, Jesus tells us that the Father loves him. So not only does God, did he love before creation, but he loves inside of the Trinity. And I'm going to explain what that means in a second when I get to the Trinity. Not only that, but God also loves sinners and humanity. We see that in Romans 5, 8. Next, God is good. The goodness of God. This is so big. Uh, Scholars say that God's goodness comprises of his mercy and his grace and his patience. Psalm 103, 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Uh, Let me give you some references for God's mercy. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.3, Hebrews 4.16, James 5.11. For God's grace, which, by the way, God's mercy is simply not getting what you do deserve. So when we deserve death for our sin, God's mercy is us not getting it. God's grace, which is us getting what we don't deserve. This is the idea of a present. We, We don't deserve it, but God gives it to us. The cross, we don't deserve it, but God gives it. Uh, we see this in Romans 9:15, 1 Peter 5:10, and Romans 3:23 through 24. And lastly, God's patience. Uh, we see this in 1 Timothy 1:16 and 1 Peter 3:20. Uh, but let me just give you one. I, I want to give you a book of the Bible for all of God's goodness. If you've never studied the book of Jonah, uh, can I just encourage you tomorrow morning when you wake up, open it up and read the book of Jonah. And you say, Tanner, I have read the book. I know about the fish that swallows Jonah. That's not what I'm talking about. The whole point of the book of Jonah is to highlight God's character, the goodness of who God is, that he's gracious and merciful and patient. And we see a a prophet who knew that about God, and he's upset about it. And so I I don't want to give anything away, but go read the book of Jonah. It shows us God's goodness um, better than than anywhere else in Scripture. Um, Lastly, uh, about God's attributes. God is holy. This means God is separated from sin, and he's devoted to seeking his own honor. We see this in Psalm 71, 22, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah the prophet walks into the temple, and the robe of God is there. And he cries out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. The holiness of God. Included in this is God's wrath and his justice, that God hates sin, and sin deserves a punishment. This comes directly from God's holiness. Um, 
Perhaps God's holiness is the attribute that rightly defines all of who he is. In other words, if I had to take one attribute and say this is who God is, I would say holy. Because nothing else in creation is holy. Nothing else ever has been holy. So I said that I would mention the Trinity, and this is a doctrine that for your entire life you could spend learning about, and you would never even scratch the surface of what to learn there. Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity states that God eternally exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Let me say that again. This is important. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. We see references of the Trinity uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God makes man. He says, let us make man in our own image. Uh, The plural there, the plural pronoun there, us, is not by accident. It's referring to all three persons in the Trinity. We see it again at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, where the Father speaks and Jesus is being baptized, and it says the Spirit descended like a dove. And we see the Trinity there. Um, Maybe the most clear picture is in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, where uh, Jesus says to go do this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he names for us the persons of the Trinity. And so there is one God three distinct persons, and they are all fully God. So what is our application of what a disciple believes about God? Well, let me just give you this. Every time we study who God is, if it doesn't lead us to worship him, we've missed the point. As disciples, when we think about who our God is, we should worship him and bow on our faces, honoring him, glorifying him. But it also means that we should go and proclaim his goodness to others. Don't keep it for yourself. Thirdly, I I need to pick up the pace here. What do disciples believe about Jesus? Well, first, Jesus is fully man. He was born of a virgin, Luke 1, 34 through 35 says that. When, When an angel came to Mary and she says, how am I to give birth to a child? I'm a virgin. And he says, the Holy Spirit will do this. And the child will be born and will be called holy, the son of God. So being born of the virgin birth is important because it allowed Jesus to be fully human and fully God, yet without sin, without the curse of sin. So Jesus was born of a virgin. He had a human body. We see this in John chapter 19 when Jesus is on the cross and it says Jesus thirsts. What that literally means, it's telling us that Jesus had real human needs. He had to eat and drink. Jesus also had emotions. Well, one of my favorite passages, John chapter 11, the death and then the, uh, the resurrection of Lazarus where Jesus brings him back to life. John eleven thirty five. perhaps you've uh, memorized this verse, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And so Jesus had real emotions as a human We also know that in John chapter 19 that he died and he indeed did have a soul. So Jesus is fully man, but Jesus is also fully God. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That word that's being referenced there is Jesus. So Jesus is God. Titus 2, 13 speaks of Jesus as God as well. And so there's another reference there. And also Jesus performed miracles, um, that could only be done by God. This is further evidence for his deity. Uh, thirdly, Jesus is sinless. Uh, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is, is pushed into the wilderness by the Spirit, and Satan comes to tempt him. But he doesn't fail. Jesus remains without sin. John eight twenty nine tells us that Jesus always does what the Father asks. In other words, he's always obedient. John 18, 38, uh, Pilate, even an evil human being could look at Jesus and say, I see no wrong in this man. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin. So Jesus is sinless. Next, Jesus is the sacrifice. You see, Jesus paid the penalty that we deserved. We see that in Hebrews 9. 
Uh, Jesus was the propitiation, or another word for that is the atonement. He uh, appeased the wrath of God. We see that in 1 John 4.10. Jesus brought reconciliation to overcome our separation from God. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.18-19. Jesus also brought redemption. This means that we were bought with a price and we were renamed and we are called children of God. We see that in Colossians 1.13, a beautiful passage as well. Lastly, Jesus is alive. Perhaps the greatest truth that we believe about Jesus, that he was resurrected. We see that in John chapter 20. But this resurrection, Peter tells us in chapter one of his letter, ensures our hope. This resurrection, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, ensures our justification. And finally, the resurrection ensures our resurrection, that one day we will also be raised and live in eternity with Jesus. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6. So, Jesus, what do we do with the belief of Jesus? Well, we surrender to him. We trust him. We believe in his sacrifice on the cross. Fourthly, what did disciples believe about man? First, man was made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 tells us this, that, that the triune God decided to make us in his own image. We were the, the top of creation. We were the best of the best because we're made in his image. Now, what does this mean? This means not that we look like, Jesus, or like God. It, it doesn't mean that. It means rather that whoever God is, that we reflect that. You see, James chapter 3 will tell us that the image of God in humanity is distorted because of the fall, but it's not lost. Even though sin is in the world now, the image of God still reigns in us. It's like this. Have you ever walked up to a mirror and it was really dirty and you could make out that you were standing there, but you couldn't really see every single part of yourself? That's the idea of the image of God now after the fall, is that we reflect God, but we don't do it very well. This means that we have value as humans. Secondly, man and woman were created equally in value. I love the way Matthew Henry puts it. He says, she was not made, speaking of Eve, out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him and under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. So man and woman are equal in value. Lastly, we are sinners. Romans 5 tells us that, Eve, that because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, it is inherited through to us. It says that in verse 12 of chapter 5. And so, what do we do with our beliefs about man? Well, the image of God should drive us to love people. Uh, We're in an election year, and there is more hate going on now than ever before. Can I tell you that every single person running for office is made in the image of God? And that means that you should love them and respect them. But it also means because we are sinners, we need salvation. And so what do we believe about salvation? Fifth, what do disciples believe about salvation? One, we need it. Our sin separates us from God. And it's not just the actions. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us it's also our desires and our attitude. So what happens in the process of salvation? Well, first, regeneration happens. This is the secret secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. We see this in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. But regeneration is totally from God. We need to make sure we get this clear. Regeneration comes first, and it's only of God. And it always leads to obedience in Jesus. We see that in 1 John 2, 29. After regeneration comes conversion. This is our willing response to the gospel in which we sincerely repent of our sins and place our trust in Jesus' work on the cross. Can I just summarize conversion for you? Conversion means this, repent and believe. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. This is the idea of saving faith. In 1 John 3, uh, verses 6 through 8, shows us that repentance 
must be present. Where there is no repentance, there is no conversion. Uh, following conversion comes justification. I love the way Pastor Brandon puts justification. It's made me to where I never forget what justification is. He says this, justification is just as if I never sinned. It's the idea that we've been made holy before God because of Jesus' blood. We see that in Romans 3.28. So what do we do with salvation? How do I apply this? Well, let it be a source of joy that you've been saved. You have been saved from the wrath of God. But also, let that joy be what drives you to go and share with others. Lastly, what do disciples believe about the end times? Well, let me just give you three things, and these are certain. Jesus will return. There's no doubt. It will happen. Hebrews 9.28 says that. But concerning the return, Mark 13 tells us that no one knows the time of the return. That's verses 32 and 33. Jesus says even the Son doesn't know the hour. Secondly, the return of Jesus will be visible for all. We see this in Revelation 1 verse 7 and Acts 1.11. Next, Jesus' return will bring judgment. Now, this judgment will be on unbelievers and believers. And you say, whoa, 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 what, what am I being judged for as a believer? You will stand before God and give an account for how you loved people and how you shared his gospel. So you will be judged as a believer, and then you will enter into eternity with Christ. We also see that Jesus' return means eternity with him. His return means eternity. If You've still got your Bible out. Turn with me to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. This is a passage that I have found so encouraging in my life. This is in days when, when, I am, when I'm down in the dumps and I'm not finding a lot of motivation. This is what I look to. This is what eternity will be like. Starting in verse 1, the Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the great hope that we have, that we will dwell with God and he will wipe away every tear from our eye and pain will be no more. So how do we apply this? What do we do with this as disciples? We long for the day. We long for the day of Jesus' return. But in the meantime, we seek to make the bride bigger and better looking for when Jesus returns. Now, I've heard this statement um, from someone else. I can't remember who it was now, but I, I love the way, the way it says it. Uh, it says the way that we should make disciples. It says, make heaven crowded. Make heaven crowded so that when you get there, you'll look around and you'll say, I know these people. I discipled these people. And you've done it for the glory of God. It, if you have your Bible still there, uh, just quickly turn back to Romans 1. As I conclude, Paul ends verse 5 by saying that we've done this for the sake of his name, of Jesus' name. We've done this for his name among all the nations. So what is it that drives us to do discipleship? What is it that drives us to, to obey because of our faith? It's because we love Jesus and we want his glory 
to be proclaimed above everything else in all the nations. This is our drive. Let me ask you this. If you love Jesus and you really want to see his name glorified, but you're not making disciples, what does that say? Do you have a group of people that you meet with regular, that you pour into or that they pour into you? Let me just give you some practical ways to do discipleship. As you read through God's word together, just pick a book, any book, and read through it together and discuss it. And you say, Tanner, I don't even know what to discuss. Well, here, here's what should drive your discussion. What does this passage tell me about the word of God? Ask that question and discuss it. Then ask, what is this passage? What is this book, this chapter? What does it tell me about who God is? What does it say about God? And discuss that. What does it say about man? What does it say about our sinfulness? What does it say about who Jesus is or the coming of Jesus? Discuss that. What does it say about salvation? And lastly, what does it say about the end times? Let those six things be what drives your conversation because when you do those things, you will have conversations of the commands of Jesus, but also of the beliefs of Jesus. And when we discuss our faith, brothers and sisters, we can't help but obey because our God is too great. Will you pray with me? Father God, I feel like I was shooting water out of a fire hydrant right now. Lord, I pray that some of that has stuck. God, I pray that by your, the power of your Holy Spirit would you continue to work in people's lives. Lord God, I ask for forgiveness for being a disobedient son. God, for having a faith, but standing in the middle of the road in the headlights and not running. Father, would you forgive me? Forgive us, Lord, for not being obedient sons and daughters. Lord, as we, we go out in our separate ways, God, would you keep us safe? God, keep us, keep us clean. Father, help us to speak of your goodness for the sake of your gospel so that your name will be glorified. And Father, we long for the day that you return. We long for it. So Father, come. In Jesus' name, amen.